And uh, let's turn together to Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness, instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with the beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations." For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed 
desolate. But you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night, they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest. And give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. This is the word of God. The tone of, as we've seen in so many passages and enjoyed so many passages together along the way, the tone of authentic biblical Christianity is joy. Not mere optimism. Although it's hard not to be optimistic when you realize that the one running the whole universe right down to the details, as Hebrews chapter 1 says, the one running the universe is Jesus. But a deep gladness. This is the flavor of Christianity. The whole message of the Bible is distilled into one essential drop in the words of the angel at the birth of Jesus, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. But sometimes the church doesn't stand out as living proof of this joy. And when that happens, it really makes a difference. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a book, The British Preacher. He was a physician that God called into preaching ministry. Uh, Lloyd-Jones wrote a book entitled Spiritual Depression. And if you have struggled with depression along the way, I want to commend that book to you. Lloyd-Jones, hyphenated last name. Martin Lloyd-Jones, Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cure. It's still in print. And he writes in that book, As we face the modern world with all its trouble and turmoil and with all its difficulties and sadness, nothing is more important then that we who call ourselves Christian and who name the name of Christ should be representing our faith in such a way before others as to give them the impression that here is the solution. Here is the answer. In a world where everything has gone so sadly astray, we should be standing out as men and women apart, people characterized by a fundamental joy and certainty in spite of conditions, in spite of adversity. One of the marks of the early church was this fundamental joy and certainty in God. They demonstrated it in real lives, in that real world. I remember some years ago reading a book on daily life in ancient Rome by an Italian scholar, and he writes that you could stand on a Roman street on any any given day Listen carefully, and there was a good chance you would be able to hear in the distance the rumble of some apartment building in the city collapsing because of its shoddy construction. That was the world in which the Roman Christians lived and raised their families. 
The classical world of Greece and Rome was, was not the way the movies portray it. The streets of Rome were deepest darkness after nightfall. There was no proper sewage treatment. There was no medical care as we know it. No air conditioning. No inoculations for the children. No medications. No retirement benefits. No refrigeration. No clean water. No balanced diet. And so forth. Life was grim. (laughs) But the early Christians, living real lives in that real world, stood out. Joy had come to them that wasn't from this world. The gospel of full acceptance before a holy God through the finished work of Christ on the cross, the living presence of the very Holy Spirit of God, wisdom for living life day by day, and above all, the certainty of endless enjoyment of God in heaven forever. What more could anyone ask? One of the most important ministries in the church today is to help people recover what Peter calls this joy unspeakable and full of glory. It was the mission of Jesus coming into the world to bring good news to the poor and bind up the brokenhearted and proclaim liberty to the captives and comfort all who mourn and anoint them with the oil of gladness that the Lord may be glorified. Now, what makes a big difference in getting there is when you realize that Christianity is not you taking up the faith and practicing it and proving yourself by it, but rather Christianity is Christ taking hold of you and healing you and caring for you. When you realize that in some real personal sense in your experience Christ is as it were bending over you to bandage you and bind up your wounds and speak encouraging words to you then you are motivated to abandon yourself joyfully to him we see this this sense of the initiate the loving initiative of god throughout the new testament for example here's just one illustration paul writes not that i have already obtained this or am already perfect but i press on to make it my own why where's the motivation because christ jesus has made me his own now in this passage the prophet isaiah sets before us the loving initiatives of God experienced through Jesus Christ the Messiah. You see the structure of the text, how carefully it's written, and you may want to keep that open as we go through this. I hope that that's helpful. Now, Isaiah's pastoral intention, what is he trying to accomplish by all of this? He just wants to encourage us. He wants to help us relish our Messiah. He wants to draw us into such assurance in Christ that we do exert ourselves to promote holy joy in God and pray for its full success in our generation. So let's take this one step at a time. First of all, the anointed one, his liberating mission, verses 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, 
because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. Of course, they poured ashes on their head when they were in mourning. To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Now, as you can see in your English Bible, these three verses are all one long sentence because Jesus was empowered with the greatest anointing of the Holy Spirit in the history of the human race for one reason, to bring good news to the poor. Jesus himself summed up his mission this way. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. And here in Isaiah 61, Messiah announces with seven infinitives all that it means for him to save us. Now, why is Messiah's ministry in this passage stated and described in terms of helping people in trouble, people in bondage, depressed people, coming to their aid. Because the Jews in Babylon, to whom this originally was written, were just that way. They were absolutely defeated. They thought that God had abandoned them. And sometimes we do too. But the servant, as we saw last week, the servant who suffered to bear their guilt away from them is also anointed to spread his joy to them. And how does he do so? By preaching. It says here, the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives. The good news of the gospel declares to oppressed people that God has won the victory over everything that brings them down. People who fear that they've committed the unpardonable sin who think they've gone too far. People who are broken by their failures, who think their chance at life is over. People who see no tomorrow for them. God has something to say to you. He has empowered Jesus of Nazareth to lead you into newness. Back in the Old Testament uh, era, Israel had a remarkable institution called the Year of the Jubilee. You can read about it in Leviticus chapter 25. Every 50th year, Israel was to take the whole year off, cancel all debts, return to its original owners, family property that it had to be sold in the course of the previous 49 years, They were, for one whole year, their job was to just be nice to everybody. Just be generally kind and 
and gracious. The, 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 the watchword of the year of Jubilee is there in Leviticus 25, verse 10, proclaim liberty throughout the land. Now, of course, it was meant to foreshadow the radical grace of God in Christ. And now, Isaiah is alluding to Leviticus chapter 25 and the year of the Jubilee. He is, he's writing with that in mind, and he's saying that the Messiah will bring that liberation to perfect fulfillment by his ministry of gospel proclamation. He wants us to know on divine authority that we are free to leave the past behind and enter into holy liberation according to God's word. And we know from what Brad read before in the service from Luke chapter 4 that Jesus launched his ministry by reading this very passage in the synagogue service in Nazareth. He said to the people on that day, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now that that moment was history in the making. All lines in the Old Testament were converging on that moment. All the tangles of sin that we'd created since the fall of Adam, Jesus, at that moment, began to loosen. And he continues his liberating ministry through the preaching of the gospel today. But there is a problem here in these verses, or at least there's a question. Why does Messiah say in verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God? How does that fit together? How does the day of vengeance of our God cohere with all of these wonderful declarations in verses 1 through 3. Well, the year of the Lord's favor, as I said, alludes to that year of Jubilee in the Levitical legislation. And what we need to understand within the the framework of biblical and redemptive history is that right now we are living in that era of favor, gospel favor. But what is the day of vengeance of our God? Interestingly, and you probably noticed this uh, as we were reading Luke 4, when Jesus read that passage, this passage in that service in Nazareth, he stopped reading right at the end of the first line of verse 2. Usually synagogue readings were really long, long readings of Scripture. Jesus cut it off very abruptly after the first line of a verse, a brief reading. He omitted any reference to the day of vengeance of our God. Why? Aren't all three verses here fulfilled in Jesus the Messiah? Yes, but not all at the same time. God has a schedule for the fulfillment of his plan. At Christ's first coming, he inaugurated the year of the Lord's favor. And we are now living in that season of healing and grace. But at his second coming, Jesus will bring in the day of vengeance of our God, when the door of grace will shut forever. And we don't know how long we have. And that is why 
all authentic gospel ministry must have a note of urgency about it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, it's interesting how Paul leans on the Corinthians. He says to them, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Because we don't have forever. But while this season of favor lasts, Jesus, on this day in history, is busily taking away the ashes of mourning that we put on our heads and replacing them with a beautiful headdress, the oil of gladness, and a garment of praise. This is his influence wherever he goes. And what's the net impact? Does the happiness he creates have a morally weakening influence? Verse 3. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. The gospel applied strongly to our real needs builds strong Christians. What he calls the planting of the Lord. Not just human resolve. The planting of the Lord. And his ultimate purpose in it all appears at the end of that verse that the Lord may be glorified. That is to say, there are several words for, that are translated be glorified. In this case, that the beauty of God may be seen and admired and delighted in and wondered at in us. That is the mission of Jesus Christ into the world. And it's our mission today by His same Spirit. Secondly, then, a priestly people. Shame replaced with honor, verse 4. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Isn't that interesting? Gospel encouraged, gospel liberated, gospel bandaged people become a force for renewal. Mourners stop wringing their hands and become builders. Old, long-standing ruins in our personalities, in our homes, in our world are restored. Now, why does Isaiah use this language of reconstruction and, and so forth? Because... He talks about rebuilding because the Jewish people would soon return from Babylon to Jerusalem and they would literally rebuild that city. But what God did through them then was only a token and a symbol of a deeper restoration for us all because we need it. You won't mind if I quote Bob Dylan. What are you going to do, fire me? Bobby Dylan sings, Broken bottles, broken plates, broken switches, broken gates, broken dishes, broken parts. Streets are filled with broken hearts. Broken words never meant to be spoken. Everything is broken. 
broken hands on broken plows, broken treaties, broken vows, broken pipes, broken tools, people bending broken rules. Take a deep breath. Feel like you're choking? Everything is broken. That's the world we live in. That's who we are. Since the fall, sin has been spreading a culture of death. And everything is broken. We are not normal. This world is not normal. But the Messiah has come to recreate a culture of life. That's who we are. Through the gospel, he is rebuilding the ruins of sin. He even makes us instrumental in his ongoing work. Verse 5, Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. So, let's... Be careful here. Isaiah does not say that we are the bosses of the world. He says we are the priests of the Lord and the ministers of our God. He is not recommending any kind of religious colonialism. He is saying that as the gospel binds up our wounds and liberates our captivity and comforts our mourning and anoints us with the oil of gladness, the nations will see that their idols are nothing, and that our God is the one they have been groping after all along. Rather than oppressing the church, the nations will say to us, you are the people who have the blessing of God upon you. You have what we want. Show us the way. The best advertisement for Jesus is our newness of life. But the success of his mission, important as we are in it, the success of his mission is not up to us because God has made the commitment to this. Look at uh, the Lord's commitment, verse 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. So God, from the very depths of his being, gives himself with the passions of his heart, gives himself to the ministry of restoration. You see, that word justice, I the Lord love justice, we saw the same word back in chapter 40. And you may remember that I commented there at that time, that word justice does not mean merely legal rectitude. The English word justice doesn't really do, <laughs> doesn't do justice to that word. <laughs> that word refers to the way human life and human society are supposed to be. And God is saying, I love that new pattern of human life. God is saying, I am emotionally committed to my kingdom coming and my will being done on earth as it is infallibly done in heaven. And with that same passion, I love justice, I hate robbery and wrong, 
He, that's how he sums up the way human life and human society are right now. With that same passion, he hates the robbery and wrong that society is today, twisting and distorting what he meant it to be, what he meant us to be. That's who God is. He loves what is right. He hates what is wrong. And he will not rob us. He will not defraud us. It is unthinkable that God would fail to give us what Isaiah calls our recompense, our reward, all that he has promised us in Christ according to his everlasting covenant. And we will enter into that inheritance because God is committed to it. Believe God for that, for yourself. Everything that sin has taken away from you, God will give it back through the merit of Christ. He will heal you. He will anoint you with the oil of gladness. He will comfort you in your mourning. And what we want to do right now is by faith, according to his word, reach out for this ministry of restoration through Christ. About 250 years ago, um, I was going to say Bob Dylan, Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon in which his, he had a thesis a succinct summary statement in every sermon. His thesis for the sermon was, persons need not and ought not to set any bounds to their spiritual and gracious appetites. What was he saying? He was saying, you may be as greedy as you want for Christ, your treasure. He was saying, you may be as pleasure-seeking as you want for the feast of Christ to taste the goodness of the Lord. And you may be as ambitious as you want to be identified with Christ your King in front of the whole world. You may not and you must not set any bounds to your spiritual and gracious appetites because God has made an everlasting covenant with you to give everything back that sin has taken away. Do not, therefore, be seduced by this world, but give yourself to the reward that you have in Christ. And be busy about the happy task of rebuilding ruins. Fourthly, the anointed one, his saving power, chapter 61, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, 
and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Now, who is speaking here? One of the challenges of this passage is to figure out who is speaking at each point along the way. And it seems at this point that Messiah is speaking. What is he saying? He is setting the tone for his ministry of salvation and restoration. And he is saying, I am thrilled at what God is doing. When he says that God has clothed him here with the garments of salvation and covered him with a robe of righteousness, what does he mean? Interestingly enough, back in chapter 59, God clothes himself with righteousness and salvation. In other words, God is saying, I am equipping myself, presenting myself, asserting myself for the task of righteousness and salvation. But now, that equipping, that power, that resolve pass on to the anointed one because... God saves through Jesus Christ and in no other way. And our Messiah is rejoicing in what God is doing through him. He sees the ministry of salvation. As he looks upon it, he sees it as having all the joy of a wedding celebration, which is why he talks about a bride and groom. He sees it as having all the fruitfulness of a garden springing up with new life. God has launched a movement that will leave the nations in awe. And we are a part of it. And Jesus Christ is on this day doing God's will in the world with the joyful enthusiasm of these verses. Which makes a difference for us. Look at what follows. We are that prophetic voice. Chapter 62, verse 1. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. Until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. Verse 4. You shall no more be termed forsaken. The Jews were probably telling themselves that we're forsaken. You shall no more be termed forsaken. And your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. God intends to prove to the whole world how shiningly glorious it is to be loved by no one less than God. He holds us, Isaiah says, in his hand like a crown. I suppose we could say that he is restoring us as we would restore a piece of the finest jewelry. He gives us royal dignity and worth. He delights in us as we are in Christ. And this good news is too great to be kept secret. And so now a prophetic voice, it would have been Isaiah himself, 
dedicates his life to praying and working toward this goal. Now, this passage, the beginning of chapter 62, highlights one of the key differences between biblical faith and pagan idolatry. In the Canaanite epic of Baal, which you can read in English translation today, it was discovered in the 1930s in Syria, translated and so forth. In the Canaanite epic of Baal, there is no declaration at all that he delights in his worshipers. There, is n- there isn't even a sense of personal relationship with Baal. He was a cosmic force to tap into. He was the cosmic gumball machine. And you put in the quarter and turn the crank and down would come the rain to water your crops and keep you alive for another year. Idolatry is mechanistic, not personal in nature. But here, we see in our passage, is a defining feature of the gospel that God delights in us in such a way that the prophet is forced to use marital language to describe the relationship. God says, I even have a pet name for you now. Hepzibah. My delight is in her. We are no longer defined by our past. We are no longer defined by our offenses against God. He defines us with a new name of his own choosing. And our part is to give ourselves to this. If this is true, this is the greatest thing in life, isn't it? And our part is to give ourselves to the cause of the gospel, to this outpouring of grace upon a guilty world, praying and working for the people of God to enter into their enjoyment of the Lord. The Lord's strategy, tireless intercessors, verses 6 and 7. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest. And look at this. And give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. Now, who are the watchmen? We are. God has positioned us each one of us in life, to keep our eyes peeled for what he's doing in the world, to shout down to each other from that position of observation what we see the Lord doing, to encourage each other, to keep each other up to date. But not only do we speak to each other as watchmen on the walls, we are also those who put the Lord in remembrance. We also speak to God. And with language I would never have dared to use, the Bible is always more daring than we are, with with language I would not have dared to use, we are to give God no rest until a fully restored church astonishes the world. That's our life mission. God is, as it were, overcome by prayer. Jacob wrestled with God. 
And God said to him, You have striven with God and men and have prevailed. Jesus compared prayer to a man who gets up at night, goes to his neighbor's house, pounds on the door. The neighbor says, I've already gone to bed. Leave me alone. But he keeps pounding on the door in, 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 until, the text says, because of the man's imprudence, the neighbor gets up and helps him. The Apostle James says that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And God has positioned you and me for that purpose, each of us seeing his work from a particular angle of vision and praying down his power upon the ministry of the gospel until his work is complete. So the purpose of God is his greater glory, our richer joy, and the salvation of the nations. But how do we get inside that beautiful purpose? How do we enter into joy unspeakable and full of glory? Let me quote with, uh, close with two quotes. First of all, from John Owen, the Puritan theologian. Do we find ourselves lifeless in the spiritual duties of religion? Are we strangers to the heavenly visits of consolation and joy? Those visitations of God, whereby he preserves our souls. Do we seldom enjoy a sense of the shedding abroad of his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit? We have no way of recovery but this alone. Unto Christ we must look, that we may be saved. It is a steady view or contemplation of his glory by faith alone that will bring in all these things in a lively experience into our hearts and souls. Now that was 300 years ago. And lest we think, well, not anymore. You know, this past July, Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, died of pulmonary fibrosis, a most remarkable man. Two years ago, he was interviewed by Christianity Today. Let me quote from that interview. CT, what is your condition? Bright, I've lost 60% of my lung capacity and it keeps going down. One day I'll breathe my last, which is fine. I can say I've lived a pretty exciting life, but since it was announced to me that there is no cure for the disease, I've entered into a different relationship and a more wonderful intimacy with the Lord. James says to rejoice when you're having difficulties. Paul speaks of rejoicing when you suffer. I know the reality that they were describing. CT, your health is declining. Bright, but my spirit is soaring. C.T., do you feel you've completed the mission for which you were put on earth? Bright, God doesn't need Bill Bright any more than he needs a twig on a tree. He created us in his image and he loves us. But he can raise up sticks and stones to worship him. So it's not as though my departure is going to leave a big hole. C.T., 
What would be your parting words to believers? Bright. Jesus said, Come unto me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Peace I leave with you. So my word to believers would be, Let us awaken out of our Laodicean spirit and return to our first love, and let us share this most joyful news with everybody on the planet. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that this infinitely valuable gospel of Jesus, empowered by the Spirit of God, would have its full effect upon every one of us to give us the oil of gladness, to comfort all who mourn, to preach good news to the poor, to rebuild devastations, to create newness. We pray for that, dear Lord. We pray for the encouragement of this church in Christ. We pray for the influence of this ministry throughout the CSRA and around the world. We pray that the ministry of Jesus would be our ministry. And to that we dedicate ourselves afresh. To that we say amen. For that we pray. And for that we will live. And we are very grateful to be a part of this joyous work you are doing in our generation. 